Well, greetings and welcome to the JACCP podcast. This is Stuart Haynes, and I'm the Senior Associate Editor for the Journal of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. And I'm also Professor of Pharmacy Practice and Director of Pharmacy Professional Development at the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy. Thanks for joining us today. In this episode, we're talking about cannabis, uh, a medicinal plant that has been used for millennia but was marginalized and eventually outlawed in many countries in the 20th century. But there has been a resurgence of interest, and many states in the United States and many countries now allow patients to possess and consume cannabis products for both medicinal and recreational purposes. Lots of papers have been written in recent years about medical cannabis, but the regulatory and research landscape continues to change so rapidly, and the journal editors thought it was important to publish a contemporary review. So I'm really pleased that Dr. Leah Sarah and her co-author, Nakia Duncan, agreed to write uh, an invited review for us on this topic. The paper is entitled Medicinal Cannabis, Roles, Responsibilities, and Challenges for Clinical Pharmacists. And it was published this month, July 2023, in the journal. And joining me today is Dr. Sarah from the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy. Leah is an associate professor of pharmacy practice and a board-certified pharmacotherapy specialist. And more importantly, for the purposes of our discussion today, the co-director of the Master of Science in Medical Cannabis Science and Therapeutics degree program, which has attracted students from across the globe. Uh, Leah was one of my former students and a professional colleague at the University of Maryland, so I'm really delighted that I get to interview her today on the JACCP podcast. Leah, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here, Stuart. So Leah, before we get started talking about the paper you wrote, I'm curious how you became interested in cannabis therapeutics and what led to the creation of the master's degree program at Maryland. Well, my professional interest in cannabis medicine really comes from my clinical training as a palliative care pharmacist. So back in 2010, 2011, while I was completing my pharmacy residencies, and this was years before medical cannabis was actually legalized in Maryland, I still heard nurses and hospice team meetings mentioning how patients were interested in learning more about medical cannabis. And then throughout the years, you know, in, in my own clinical practice, I would get the occasional drug information question from patients or from the palliative care team about uh, using cannabis to treat symptom, end-of-life symptoms like pain or nausea. Uh, and then in 2017, the dean of our pharmacy school announced that we were going to be developing a master's program in medical cannabis. And there are a couple of reasons for, you know, why this happened at that time. First, the medical cannabis programs in Maryland and other states uh, were, were rapidly expanding. And second, because most traditional higher education programs like pharmacy school, medical school, nursing school, really any higher education programs don't include cannabis-related content in their programs. 
Um, so I knew when I heard that announcement that I wanted to be involved, maybe I could teach a course in the program. I asked my department chair to put in a good word for me to the dean. Um, and then after getting a chance to share my ideas with the dean, I was given the opportunity not just to be a part of it, but to lead the program as director, developing and implementing this uh, new curriculum. So the program launched in 2019, and it's been the greatest challenge and opportunity of my career so far. So as you describe in your paper, the regulatory landscape related to cannabis has really changed in the past 20 years or so. Decriminalization laws started to pass in a few states in the 1990s. And of course, California became the first state to officially sanction the medical use of cannabis in the Compassionate Use Act, which was passed in 1996. Fast forward, and the majority of states permit the use of cannabis for medical purposes. And of course, many states now allow the non-medical or recreational use of cannabis as well. But at the federal level, cannabis remains a Schedule I substance, except I, I guess hemp, which is also a cannabis plant with low concentrations of tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, but which can have really high or relatively high concentrations of other cannabinoids. So it seems to me that we are in a bit of a regulatory morass at the, at the moment in the United States. Can you highlight some of the differences in the way cannabis and particularly medical cannabis is regulated in, in the United States? Regulatory morass is a very good way to describe the legal landscape of cannabis and cannabinoid products in the U.S. You know, as you stated, cannabis is still a Schedule One substance, and it has been since the creation of the Controlled Substances Act in 1970. And this is despite multiple petitions to change that regulatory status. Right now, a multi-agency review of cannabis is occurring um, because President Biden ordered that review last fall. And so this is potentially good news for those in favor of removing cannabis from Schedule 1, including me. Uh, but I will believe it when I see it. <laughs> there has to be a lot of political will in favor of making a change before it actually happens, in my opinion. So anyway, because of, of this you know, federal status of cannabis, the states have obviously made their own laws and policies related to cannabis, and they vary widely. Some states allow medical cannabis only. Some states allow low CB, uh, allow CBD or low THC cannabis products only. Some states allow medical and adult use or recreational use. And then there are still a few states that have no cannabis program at all. As I'm sure you have seen, CBD products are in every pharmacy, every grocery store. They're sold online, but they're not regulated at all by the FDA. Uh, and generally, there's very little evidence to support their use from you know, a, a healthcare or medical standpoint. You can find psychoactive hemp-based THC derivatives like Delta-8 and Delta-10 at gas stations. So they're everywhere. The Legal and medical state of cannabis and cannabis-based products is unique in the U.S. because the development of these laws, regulations, and policies has been driven by public interest and by increasing use of cannabis, 
not by the kind of robust research that we use to make regulatory decisions about other drugs and medicines. And the reason that it's hard to do that research in the U.S. comes back to the fact that cannabis remains a Schedule One substance. So in your paper, Leah, you describe four issues or areas of concern that are of importance to patients with regard to medical cannabis. The first issue is that many patients feel their health providers, including physicians, nurses, and pharmacists, are not particularly knowledgeable about medical cannabis. And some providers have rather negative views about cannabis and cannabis users. What's the source of this problem and what can we do about it? Like most issues that are related to cannabis, there are, you know, I think multiple reasons for this. The most obvious one that I touched on before is that topics like the endocannabinoid system, cannabinoid pharmacology, cannabis therapeutics aren't taught in most health professions curricula, although that is now slowly starting to change. So there is a lack of knowledge lack of comfort with the information itself. Also, there's a great weight of history and stigma that's bearing down on healthcare professionals. And most people don't know that in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, cannabis was used primarily as medicine or for industrial purposes. Um, and cannabis was actually included in the USP up until 1942. Cannabis was effectively prohibited in 1938 with the Marijuana Tax Act, and this is a law that came about not because cannabis was suddenly very dangerous, but because a man named Terry Anslinger used cannabis as a tool to kind of cement his own legacy as the commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. And he exploited racial tensions in the early 20th century to gain support for this anti-cannabis legislation. Uh, at the time, the head of the American Medical Association actually argued against this legislation, but obviously was not successful. Kind of fast forward a little bit, and cannabis became officially illegal with the creation of the Controlled Substances Act. And I have spoken with someone who was involved with some of those petitions that I mentioned earlier, who was involved with petitioning the DEA more than once to remove cannabis from Schedule One, And the response from the DEA was there's not enough evidence to support medical use, right? Because Schedule One substances have a high potential for abuse and no accepted medical use. And it's very hard to, uh, to get that evidence in the U.S. because cannabis is a Schedule One substance. So in light of that, I think it's really important for healthcare professionals to, one, educate themselves on the science and understand that the legal st status of cannabis in the U.S. really isn't related to that science. And also, health professionals should know that they are allowed to talk to patients about cannabis. So discussing the benefits and risks of cannabis and even recommending cannabis in states where it's legal is protected speech under the First Amendment. Another patient concern, Leah, is access to medical cannabis. It's, it's very restricted in many states, and, and so patients have to jump through a lot of hoops. Let's talk about some of the ways states have made access to cannabis or medical cannabis more challenging. As I said before, each state is different with regards to their cannabis regulation. So in states where cannabis is legal, patients may have to meet with a healthcare provider to obtain a certification to use medical cannabis. This costs money. It's likely not going to be covered by insurance. 
Patients may have to register with their state regulatory body, so this could have additional fees. And cannabis products are expensive, so there's certainly an issue with medication affordability and access. Also, dispensaries may not be located in an area that is geographically accessible to a patient um, because states determine how many licenses and, and where these licenses for dispensaries are. However, there are also problems in states where adult or recreational use is legal because if patient access to medicine isn't protected, those dispensaries might not be able to keep products in stock for patients or they might preferentially stock products that are are more attractive to non-medical cannabis users, things like high THC products. So just legalizing cannabis for all adults isn't necessarily the answer either. And one problem with states who start with medical programs and then legalize cannabis for non-medical use is that they stop maintaining that robust medical program. And aside from the issues that I've already mentioned, I want to point out that not all patients who use cannabis medicine are adults. They're not all over the age of 21. Uh, Other issues for patients include where they can use their medicine. So for instance, what happens if a patient is hospitalized? Can they still take their medicine? And are there any limitations on on that? What about assisted living facilities? What about long-term care facilities? These are the kinds of questions that each state is still grappling with. And like all things cannabis-related in the U.S., there aren't any straightforward or easy answers. So lastly, before we kind of wrap up today, another issue you describe in your paper is the public health problems that have emerged as cannabis products have become more widely available and used by patients of all ages. Uh, What are some of these public health issues and what are some of the things that every clinical pharmacist can and should do to prevent and mitigate some of these potential harms? Well, one potential public health issue related to increased access is the possibility of increased incidence of adverse effects and, and in particular accidental ingestions by children. So one way pharmacists can help here is by educating patients about safe storage of cannabis products. Uh, And also, I want to point out here that because of the stigma that still exists, that may prevent patients from feeling comfortable talking openly about cannabis use, and pharmacists can greatly increase their, their reach by evaluating their own feelings about cannabis and by educating themselves on the science of medical cannabis use as well as the potential risks really approach the conversation about cannabis from the perspective of doing like a DUR. You're looking for facts about cannabis use so that you can optimize patient care. Some other concerns are uh, increased traffic fatalities, work-related injuries. Uh, The evidence, the the observational data is, is conflicted here. And one reason may be that it's hard to tease out the effects of cannabis when alcohol or other drugs are involved in such incidents. Plus, cannabis remains detectable in the system long after an individual is acutely impaired, uh, depending on how often they they use cannabis. Um, And unlike alcohol, where blood alcohol level is related to the level of impairment, there aren't any field tests yet that I'm aware of that will confirm if a person is intoxicated, acutely intoxicated because of cannabis. So regardless, Individuals who are using cannabis, even if it's legal for medical or or adult use in the state, may still be required to submit to drug testing by their employer 
that medical, you know, they may not be protected even if, you know, medical use is, is allowed in the state. Clinical pharmacists can counsel patients to be careful driving or doing other activities requiring physical coordination, especially if they're new to using cannabis medicine, if they're titrating the dose, um, if they're switching formulations. And clinical pharmacists can also help patients make sense of labels and dosing, because these may not be clear to patients when products are purchased at dispensaries, especially this is true with regard to edibles, which are food items that are infused with cannabis, because uh, a lot of times these items are labeled only with the total THC content of the package. And commonly one package, you know, like one chocolate bar does not equal one dose. You know, one chocolate bar might equal you know, 10 doses or 20 doses. Now, I know we don't have time to talk about all the issues. Listeners can review the paper for more um, about these public health issues. But I also wanted to mention that one more area clinical pharmacists can help optimize care is to identify risk for cannabis use disorder. And patients who have a history of substance use are at higher risk, or substance abuse are at higher risk, as are patients with mental health conditions like bipolar disorder. A harm reduction strategy here would be for the patient to use you know, low THC or CBD only, and of course, consider triage to behavioral health professionals as needed. All right, Leah, thank you so much for joining me today. This is such an important topic. And unfortunately, most of us were not really taught about medical cannabis when we were in school. So certainly I was not. So I truly hope all of our listeners will read your paper and get a better understanding of the key issues. Again, the paper is entitled Medical Cannabis, Roles, Responsibilities, and Challenges for Clinical Pharmacists, and it was published this month, July 2023, in the Journal of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. The paper is available for your reading pleasure on the JACCP website.